0: What? I think you dropped your Bible.
1: That's not mine. No, I'm pretty sure I saw you drop it. No, that's not mine. Get out of here. Well, hello, Olive Branch. Thank you for joining us as we uh, continue in the book of Jonah. Hopefully you've enjoyed the studies that have come before. I think we've had two. We just finished up Jonah chapter 1. And uh, now we're going to take up a very interesting passage here in Jonah chapter 2. I don't know if you remember the book Lord of the Rings. Many people remember the movie. It was pretty popular. Uh, I remember uh, when I was a young kid grabbing that book, being excited to read it because I liked fantasy. And I'm paging through the book. And then I noticed all of a sudden the language changed and it's all in Elvish and it's a long poem of like three pages of Elvish writings and I was very young at the time and sometimes it would read in English, the poems, and I just wanted to get back to the action. So what I would do is I would just skip those parts of Lord of the Rings and go on to the action because I was only interested in the story and I wanted to get to the gist of the story. Um, And as I've gotten older, I've learned to appreciate literature, I've learned to have a little more appreciation. I still don't speak Elfish or anything weird like that. But uh, I have learned to come to those English versions of the poems in the book and realize that what Tolkien was trying to do is give the book a feel of antiquity. And I think that's sometimes something we do when we read our Bible. We grab a Bible, we're following along in Jonah, we're getting this story about a guy in a boat, and he gets swallowed by a large creature. And then all of a sudden, there's a poem, and we're just like, blah, 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 a bunch of flurry flurry words, and then we skip on to the edge, and to the next next action beat. Uh, But the problem with that is we lose out on the feel of the antiquity of the Bible. And so I I wanted to spend some time looking at this, because it, it is a weird thing that's going on here, that right in the middle of this story, a poem is placed. And I don't know if many people know that sometimes when they read Psalms, they don't realize it's a song and it's a poem and that throughout many of the prophets there would be a pause and then a poem would take place. Now, we, we have weird uh, connections with poetry. We get Hallmark cards and they're cute and they rhyme, and then we have little rhyming poetry and stuff. But the ancient world was very different. It told its stories with lavish details um, in the poetry itself. And the sad thing about when you read a book like Jonah and, in, and when you read it and no one wants to really study some of this stuff is that you lose the flavor and the feeling and the intent of what's going on in the section. So what I wanted to do is try and see during this time if we can kind of recapture what the ancient people who would have read this felt like as they dived into this ancient poem. And it's a really bizarre poem because it starts off, if you have your Bibles, you can open with me. I'm in um, Jonah chapter 2, but I'm going to read verse 17 of Jonah chapter 1 because it kind of sets the story for us. It says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly for three days and three nights. So here Jonah gets swallowed by this fish, and then we get a poem. And it's a very odd place to write a poem, in, in, and, or to even contemplate writing poetry or thinking about poetry. But as we go on, I think it'll make more sense as we read. So I'm just going to read through and kind of stop and start from various points to just kind of point out some of the feel of this particular story in poetry. So it says, Jonah prayed to the Lord, Yahweh, his Elohim, his God, in the belly of the fish, saying... And I called out to Yahweh, and out of my distress He answered me. And out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me." So here we have it. He cries out to the Lord. And I don't know if you remember crying out. Uh, Sometimes it's hard to get this word and and in the Hebrew, it makes a little more sense, but in this word, it's crying out. I remember uh, one time when I was a kid, this kind of crying out. We were at the L.A. County Fair in Pomona. Me and my dad, my dad had these particular kind of sneakers. And as we were walking around, he's like, son, now pay attention to me and stay close. And so I was looking just kind of casually at his sneakers, and I would look away, and I would look at something, I'd look at his sneakers. And as we're walking around, the crowds were getting really thick. So I was paying attention to his sneakers, but then I looked away to look at something else, and I looked back at sneakers, and then I kept following, and I kept looking around, and I looked at the sneakers, and then I looked up, and it's not my dad. Someone else in that split second when I looked away had the same exact shoes my dad did, and I had been following this stranger. Now, as a young little boy uh, in a sea of thousands of strangers, I looked around, and I did not see my father, and I started calling out, Dad, Dad, where are you? Dad, Dad. And it's that desperation of calling out when you really just hit rock bottom. That kind of describes the kind of distress that, that, that Jonah's under in this particular passage. He's been thrown overboard, in, as, uh, off, you know, in, into the ocean, and it starts to billow around him. Weird phrases he throws out, in the belly of Sheol, I cried out, and you heard my voice. Now, Greg might have mentioned this, but in the ancient cosmology, Sheol was the bottom of the ocean, and it was, like the, it was literally what they thought where hell was. So here he is, calling out from what he considers his personal hell. And he's in desperation because the waves are coming around him. You cast me into the deep and the heart of the sea. I don't have ever been pulled out by an undertow. You've been ripped out while you're surfing, and you just feel this lack of control as the waves cross over you. He says, your flood surrounded me and your waves and your billows, they passed over me. And then I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look at you again upon your holy temple. And so it's weird as you see this guy as he's roaming around and he's describing what it's like to drown. He's describing what it's like to be surrounded in a sea of frustration and troubles where he's put himself in this situation where he's throwing overboard. And, and it's really where it comes to the first point. A lot of people say this poem, and they find out that what Jonah is doing in his distress, when he's crying out for God to, say, to, to, to deliver him, he's actually praying and saying psalms that are almost word-for-word quotes. And it, and it really comes to the point of what do you do when you're in those desperations, I and mean, maybe you're lost like I was in a little boy, and your life is just hitting that rock bottom. What comes out of your mouth? What do you cry out to? And often it's what you've put in. So now we know Jonah is not the most faithful prophet. He doesn't listen to God. And we're going to go on with the story as we get into the other chapters. And we're going to find a little bit about this ambiguous character who says he loves Yahweh, but his actions don't really show it. But at this moment in his life, uh, this poem is being written. He didn't write this while he was in the fish. This is most likely what he recalls of his time in that fish and what it was like when he's recalling back. And so when he's in that distress, what he remembers is the psalms that he was saying. And all of these are almost verbatim psalms when he's in, that he's using here. This man Jonah, he knows his Bible. He knows his Bible so well, when he doesn't have a Bible handy, it comes out of his mouth when he's in desperation. And it's like that time when I got stuck on a train track and the train's coming. And what, the, what comes out of my mouth? Is it a cuss word or is it, oh God, please help me? And the train is coming, and you're like, oh, Lord, help me, and you get off the track. That's that first split second of where do you go when you're in trouble, and you feel like you're drowning, and you're starting to tread water, and things are going. What comes out of your mouth is often that what you've put in or spent time studying. So here you have a man who's not even faithful to the Lord, but what he has been faithful to is the Scriptures, and he knows his Bible. And I think it's a good recommendation to, if you have time, if you look up these verses, and you just look up your cross-references, you look up Psalms 102, Psalms 120, Psalms 30, these are the Psalms that he's kind of quoting when he's in des- out of the desperation quote for quote. And so one of the things I want to encourage as you read this poem is it shows a picture of a man in distress and how he feels. And it's trying to paint the picture of what we should do when we want to cry out to God. And, it, and what I'm saying is, is that we often think of memorizing scriptures or going through this action of trying to figure out the mysteries of poems or boring sections of our Bible. And I think it's at that time when we make that a discipline that it'll become ever more important when we hit that point at which you know, we are in desperation and we're, and, the, and we're starting to get into the drowning situation. But let's go on, because he's going to describe how he feels as he falls into their particular cosmology of the world, and as he's actually going into Sheol, as he's falling into the pit, into the center of the earth. Here you have a man, he's actually feeling like he's drowning, but he's also leaving the presence of God as he's drowning, he's trying to pray desperately towards him. So in verse 5 we pick up again, uh, and it, well verse 4 I'll pick up, and then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The water closed up in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds wrapped around my head and the roots of the mountain. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. So here he's not just on the surface of the water. Now he's being pulled into the dark deep. And, And that ancient cosmological picture, you have the land, it's flat. It's a circle. It's like a, an oval shape Then the oval shape of the dome. And up above the dome is the firmament, and above that is God in his temple. And as he's going down into the water, what you see is a man's picture of him crying out to the temple of God. And he knows, my prayers are being heard, because he knows God put him in this situation. And that's the thing that's really weird, is we think that, God, you threw me into the deep, he says. But we know in the chapter before, it was the sailors that threw him into the deep. And you see, what God is doing is he's using the events in his life and he realizes that he sees God orchestrating these things in his life to get him to a point where he's actually contemplating who his God is. Sometimes we think we're in the middle of a tragedy and we can choose to go through that tragedy alone, or we can choose to cry out to God. And in this particular moment in his life, Jonah is crying out to God because he knows God is out there, he knows God is with him, and he knows God is even with him in the darkest of situations. So often people think when they read this chapter, or they even read this book, they often think that Jonah is crying out because he wants to be saved from a fish. Uh, and that's not the case. He actually sees this as God's answer to a prayer. What he's worried about is drowning in the dark, deep pit of hell. He's falling into the abyss, the place where actually they thought hell literally was. And God sends a creature, a monster, to gobble him up and save him even in that situation. And we think, that doesn't feel like saving, but he knows what he's put himself in, and he knows he's hit that rock bottom. And so he sees this point as a mercy that God's extended him, where he could have just kept falling into the pit of hell, and God delivers him. But now he's confined, and now we're going to follow. The waves are around him. He hasn't quite hit rock bottom. We'll get to rock bottom yet but but as we go, we'll keep reading in verse 6 here. The weeds wrapped around him, and you get this picture of the weeds wrapping around his head as they're pulling him down underneath the waters. He's hit the almost hit the bottom. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. This is where he's dying, where he's at least in his cognition, he's losing consciousness and he's fainting away and he's looking through the murky water and he knows that the heavens are above there and he knows that I, I know my prayers are answered, that, you're going, you, that you hear my prayers, God. And he cries out as he gets lower to the bottom. And he says, Those who pay regard to vain temples in verse 8 forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's look at verse 7 again. He's crying out as he's going down and he looks up to the temple and he knows that his, his voice has reached God. And it says in verse 8 that he forsake those who serve vain idols, forsake their hope in the steadfast love. Right here, he's recalling on the Lord's name. He knows that God is loving and he knows in my distress, I know you hear me, God. I know other people, they serve other gods, but I know that I serve a real God and, my, and I am reaching the heavens and I know that you hear me even in my distress. Now, we pause at this moment and we realize, who put himself in his distress? Who put himself in this situation? Who made the life choices to run from God? And and I think that's the thing that we we don't realize, that oftentimes we can be the instrument of our own causes. We can actually be the one that puts ourselves in this situation, but yet even though he knows he's put himself in this situation, he knows the scriptures say that the character of God is that he's slow. To anger, and he loves people, and his steadfast love is working even in the pits of hell, as he as he falls closer to the depths. And I think it's—I don't know if you've ever felt like you've been in a position of hell, or if you've been in a, at a hellish state where you feel like you're being surrounded. You're at the rock bottom. And you hit the rock bottom, and God grabs you at a moment and saves you, like that, that that the fish that gobbles him up, and you have nowhere else to go. And at that point, we all have choices. When we make our rock bottom choices, we hit that bottom. At that point, we can choose to ignore the only direction that we have, which is up to the heavens, or we can continue to stay in the hell that we've created for ourselves. And so for for him, he has decided, no, I believe that God hears me, that he's a God of love, and though I disobeyed God, I will turn to him and he will save me because that's the kind of God he is. And I think that until any of us go through a situation where we make that choice, where we we stop wrestling with God, we stop trying to make our own Edens, we stop trying to leave and go in different directions and run from the presence of God, when we stop at any of those moments, God is willing to correct that behavior, to make sure that we're on the right path. And if you actually look back at all these particular moments, God has been nothing but trying to chase Jonah down, not because he's just an angry God, but because he cares about Jonah. God cares about the most rebellious, angry, frustrated people that we would get mad at, people that we would discard, people that we think are not worth being saved because they are just horrible, nasty people. And God says, I still want to save those people. And the funny thing is here is, is the irony of verse, of, of verse 8, because what he's talking about is a really weird phrase. He sits here in, in verse 8, and he's like, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love, you're like, okay, I don't know what that means. Well, if you know what came before, it makes a little more sense, but this phrase steadfast love is like a, it's like a, a link that links back to other verses in our Bibles. And what the big link that it leads back to for us is a section in the Bible where God talks about who he is. So this goes all the way back to Exodus, where, uh, where Moses w- wants to plead for, on behalf of the people and he, and he wants to see who God is. And, and he, so God places him in a crevice and so the the Lord may pass by. And after this majestic encounter with God, where Moses sees God, he just barely gets a glimpse of Him, he proclaims this as to who God is, and this is who God proclaims Himself to be in that moment. And it says, The Lord, the Lord, a God of merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and that's the quote right there, steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sins, And he sits there, he's like, God forgives to thousands of generations. This God, he's come down to earth to fellowship with us, to create and to bring all of his people. Even when they're rebellious, he's still wrestling with him because that's who this God is. This God is a steadfast love. He's slow to anger. Yes, it seems like to us that when we read our, for some reason, we read our Old Testament, we think that this God is this mean, nasty God who keeps sending plagues and all these things. We don't actually see these things as God trying to get our attention. God at any moment can choose to judge. He is that person, but He's slow to anger. He's sending warnings. He sends the thing that we need to get our attention. And for Jonah, he kept running, and it kept getting worse, and it kept getting worse. And God didn't want him to reach rock bottom, but it was the only way he could get his attention. Now Jonah sees, oh, you are that steadfast love. That's the God I need right now. I have hit rock bottom. So he's calling on the name of that God. It's weird that we think that the Old Testament is somehow God is different than our New Testament God. They are the same God because this here is the most quoted passage in the Old Testament. It's quoted time and time again throughout the Psalms, throughout—it's almost in every book of the Old Testament. And it makes its way into the New Testament several times because this is who our God really is and always has been. He is a God who cares about people. and he he loves people. And then that's where people stop. They say, that's all I want to know about God. He's loving, so that means he's accepting. And that's why I think the rest of this verse is often people want to overlook. And I think that's the part where he says, God is steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sins, but who will be no means clear the guilty, but who by no means will clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the father's on the children, and on the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. And here's where people go, just lose their mind, oh, he's visiting the iniquities, he's he's visiting them in their sins, look at God just judging them, the sins of the Father being judged and placed on the sins of of the children. That's not what's going on here either. And what people often do is they overlook this verse, and they overlook the fact that God is a God of love. But if, if I keep extending love to you in the sense of I keep making excuses, do I really love you if I never correct your behavior? And so our God is a God of love and mercy, just like a parent would. If I keep excusing children's behavior that I love and I just keep letting them, do I really love them or do I just not want the confrontation? It's, it's one to be slow to anger or slow to anger, but there is a time in which God says, if you have made this choice to run away, I have to give you the consequences of your action. And for, for people who think that God is the God who's just all judges, that's, that's because you're not looking at the half that says God is compassionate to thousands, but he's only visiting the iniquities of the sins on three or four generations. Now, this phrase three or four generations doesn't mean that they're, they're actually being punished for what their fathers did. It is saying that when, when people sin... Their sins have ramifications on the third and on the fourth generations, and God has to deal with that sin and will wrestle it down with each of those three to four generations because He's a God of truth and justice and mercy. Now, the thing about it is, as soon as they repent, He's fast, fast at loving, steadfast at about He will forgive iniquities to thousands. He's waiting to do that. He's not correcting people and punishing them, and then they, they say, Oh, no, God will serve you, and He's like, No! Rah! Burn in hell! That's not the thing he's doing. He wants to forgive them, but if they're going to continue in the sin to the second and third generation, he's going to actually wrestle with that, and he's going to have to judge that. And for Jonah, he's in this situation. He's put himself in this situation. Jonah is a picture of the entire children of Israel that wanted to be in covenant relationship with God. They said that we want, to be your, you, we want you to be our God, and then they left God, and they walked away from him. And God was trying desperately to get their attention, and he sent prophet after prophet after prophet to call them until he sent his own son. And that's the picture we get here. Jonah is—each the, of these prophets get worse and worse, and Jonah is supposed to be the best of Israel, and he does not care about the lost. He only cares about his own situation, his own group of people, his own family, and, his, and, and even to the point where he's just caring about himself. And he wants to run from God and create his own life. He doesn't want to listen to the calling that God has sent him to. And God will, if we say that we love God, try to wrestle our intentions. Because God says, you say you love me, I'm going to keep pursuing you. And if you keep walking away, he's going to keep trying to pursue you. But at some point, he has to let you make your choice. You see, here's the point at which Jonah hits rock bottom and he has to make his choice. And it's the point where he says that, he says, For those who regard vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love, but I will, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. I will vow, I will, and, and I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now Jonah, at this point, has to say, "Like, look, you're right, God. My salvation only comes from you. I can't make it my own way. I have been trying to do things in my own way, and I have to choose now to make a choice to serve you or to serve my own situation. So I realize that my salvation only comes from you. And that's true, because the the choices that God gives him when we make choices, when God says, you want to pursue your own way, I have to give you the consequences of your actions. Jonah chose to walk away, he went down. Jonah chose to keep walking away, he went down. And here we find Jonah getting what he wants. He wants to be as far away from the presence of Yahweh as he possibly can. And that, my friend, is the pit of hell. Literally, this man wants to be in a place where God doesn't reign, where God's love doesn't reign in the sense that's what he thinks he's trying to pursue. He wants to be in his own destiny. He wants to be in control of his own situation. And God says, here's what that looks like. It looks like a hell of your own making. And it's then when we realize, oh, I can't save myself. Salvation doesn't come from me. It comes from the Lord. I keep trying to make my own life. I keep trying to make my own paradise. And I have to surrender. And I realized, I realized at this moment when God has put me in a place where I can't run from him anymore, that I've hit rock bottom. He's the rock bottom rebel that God's wanting to pursue. But yet God is still there in the midst of that difficult situation, trying to save this man who doesn't want anything to do with him. So it's funny that he says in verse eight, the irony of this message is is those who regard vain idols that forsake the hope of the steadfast. These vain idols... Are, are probably a reference to the sailors as they cried out last week uh, trying to find the right Elohim. what God, Wake up! Who, what God controls the sea like this? And then they realize, oh man, it's this Yahweh God. And so they say, pray to your God. What does he want us to do? And then they, he's, Jonah says, throw me overboard. And what did the sailors do after they throw Jonah overboard? They leave and go find out who Yahweh is. And they sacrifice in his temple. They do the very Christian thing or the very believing thing that Jonah is saying he wants to do in this verse. But I have vowed that I, but it's, but I will actually give you the voice of thanksgiving. I will make the sacrifice. Now, he says that with his mouth, and we hope that maybe after, this chapter, after these chapters are over that that's what he does. But the sailors, they actually did that. And it comes to this point where he's thinking all of these pagan sailors, these worldly people, they only care about themselves. They only care about, you know, their gods are stupid. But he doesn't realize that he's made a god in his own image. And he called him Yahweh. He thought God was going to let him walk away. He's like, I don't want God to be that. I want God to be just the god of justice. I don't like these Ninevites. And that's the god I want to believe And he doesn't realize that he himself is made that idol. But these pagans that he's criticizing, oh those evil sinners in the world, they're the ones that actually go and sacrifice the proper sacrifice of thanksgiving to Yahweh for saving them from the storm that Yahweh sent earlier to save them and to save Jonah from his sins. And so that's the irony of that statement. And we're struggling again, well what is Jonah's intentions here? Is he really repentant? Is he really hit rock bottom? And we're going to find out later on, I think this is a sincere moment of salvation when he realizes that salvation comes from the Lord, and a lot of people think that once you hit rock bottom that all the work is done. And I think we're going to find out that even though that Jonah has repented, it seems so here in the text, he's being thankful that God has delivered him and that he ran from God, that Jonah still has issues that he needs to work out. Jonah still needs to deal with how he loves his enemies. Jonah still has to make choices. And sometimes when we come to salvation, we hit rock bottom. It doesn't mean the work isn't over. It just means that you have stopped to realize that my salvation belongs to the Lord only. And that's the first and only starting point for all of us who want to serve God, is that we realize we've hit that rock bottom. And so that's the thing I think people want to know. people, God is willing to save the most pious, religious person that thinks they know God but really doesn't, to the person who's out there drinking and carousing and doing all these evil things, because God is in the business of saving rebels. He's in the business of saving the most wretched. And the question really is, at the end of the poem, and the question is, at the end of the series, is what are we willing to do? What are we willing? Are we willing to do those things that God has called us to do? But even before we go, I just wanted to share a little bit about with you as we talk about testimonies as we talk about lives, a little bit about the stories of people when they've hit rock bottom. What did they do? What was their experience? So we're going to share a testimony with you here. I just want you to hear just a bit about how this testimony is, and just to see how what a real rock bottom situation would look like in a modern setting. So that when you read back at these texts, they kind of highlight what God is willing to do, even for those who've run as far possible away into the pit of hell as they can. They, they haven't got anywhere farther from God than they, if, they, if there's still hope for them if they are here. And they turned to the Lord. So, I just want you to watch this testimony, and thank you so much, and we'll come back with a word of prayer.
0: Throughout my life, I was very um, not dependable, and I was very um, angry. I, I was uh, just out there just partying, and I searched in everything, but I always kept God in my, in my background, I mean in my mind, in, in the back of my memory. And during that time, I mean, I, I even recall, like, driving on the street and stopping the car and getting out and kneeling to God and saying, God, take this from me. God, please take this from me. And that went on for many, many years. I mean, we're talking about a stretch of about 15 years where I was on meth. So it was uh, it was pretty bad. I mean, through this time, I, I was shot twice. I was uh, uh, in and out of jail, in and out of jail, in and out of jail. I got so bad to where I ended up in prison. And during that time... Um, God really got a hold of me. He really started ministering to me. I was, I was in a cell with the Bible and God just started speaking to me and he, he just became tangible. And, and something happened in there. I wrote a, even though I was Catholic, I wrote, um, I wrote a salvation prayer. And there was like three or four other guys that were in the jail that would say they were a Christian, but we were segregated, so I really couldn't see them, but I could hear them. But they would be cussing at each other and stuff like that. So they were doing all this like as hypocrites, they weren't really serving God. So but I wrote a salvation prayer and I sent it to each one of these guys. And I remember Oki. Oki was the one that lived on the bottom side so under, underneath me. And um, he was literally a guy that would um, two times a week. He'd be taken out in a, in a, a, a straitjacket and he was like possessed. He was he was like foaming at the mouth possessed. I could see every week he would be gone every couple days. And this guy, he would talk to me uh, at times and I told them I wrote this prayer if they wanted to go, you know, I'm gonna kneel down after they say goodnight and I'm gonna say this prayer. And um, I don't know if you guys wanna join me. So I sent the prayers to the guys and I didn't know if they were gonna do it cause you can't really talk after you say goodnight. So I went to my bed and literally tangibly, God was with me in that room. He would met me there and I, I sweated, I cried, I prayed and I thanked him and that is the moment I got saved. I know that for a fact. That's the day my life changed. And um, I wanted to scream out to the guys and tell them, hey, did you guys feel what I felt? Did you guys feel that? And, and I couldn't. I waited till the morning. Well, early in the morning, this guy Oki, the, I'm telling you this guy was wacko. He he yells up to me, Cisco, Cisco. He's out calling me, that was my name. But um I answered him and he's like, did you feel that last night? He's like, I haven't felt nothing like that. I've never felt nothing like that. And he was like talking normal. And I'm like, man, I felt that, Okay, I felt it. I go, this, and he's like, there it is again, there it is again. So he was all like excited and I kid you not, but that guy changed like day to night. Like that guy got saved. So it was some things like that happened to me in jail to where there ain't nobody that could tell me there is no God. There is, there is not nobody that could ever tell me that because God has really met me so many times. And, and I'm just, I'm blessed to be here. I'm blessed to be at a church that, you know, loves God and teaches the truth. And um, that's it, that's where God met me.
1: through right now maybe you feel like life is just caving in on you and you're just you you've hit your rock bottom maybe you're struggling and you're you're actually starting to realize i've made some really terrible life choices i've ran from god and i've hit rock bottom and there's really nothing else i can do in my life but look up and so if that's you right now i just want to pray for you that there is hope that you, no matter what you've done in your life, whether you've killed somebody, whether you've done drugs, whether you just went to church your whole life and never cared about another living soul, whether you're racist, whether you're frustrated, whether you're angry, whether you're mad, whether you want revenge, whatever it is that you've done in your life that you realize that that didn't satisfy and it just put you in a pit and it locked you up and you are held in confinement, that the Lord is still present, that you can't get far away from God that he still wants you in his family and in his kingdom, that you're not forgotten, and that he sent his son to die for you, the ultimate prophet, the one that actually obeyed, that came into this world to die for our sins. The Bible says that Jesus said of himself, one greater than Jonah is here, because one greater than Jonah came, and not only did he fulfill just not the letter of the law, but he fulfilled it with all of his heart, that he gave all of his life for us, to us sinners, that all he wants us to do is to turn to him and to cry out, and he's right there, ready to forgive them of their sins. So if that's you here tonight, and if you're just in a state of rebellion, maybe you've been in church your whole life. Maybe you've realized you are Jonah. Jonah was supposed to represent the Israel's best, and yet he had no heart for the lost. He loved criticizing them, but he never cared enough to do what God called him to do. All of us who've been called to love our neighbors, to love other people. And so maybe you're struggling with being that kind of a rule. Maybe for you, you don't really care about whether people are going to their own personal hell. And you just go about your business because it's too frustrating or they're too angry or they're too far of a of a sinner. Maybe that's you and that's the state of rebellion you're in. But God likes to save rebels. So we're gonna pray that if that's you, that you reach out to us, talk to us, but also first cry out to God. So let's pray. Dear God, I just thank you so much for the opportunity to discuss how loving you are, how kind you are, how slow to anger and how abiding your love is, that no matter where we go on this earth, how far away we run from you, it's never far enough that you're right there to hear us. Lord, I just pray for those people who feel lost, who feel trapped, who feel confined in the sins of their own making, God, that they turn to you, Lord, and they realize that you set your son into the world to die for them so that they could be free from the chains that they've forged around themselves. All of us who say that we are Christians know this is true of us, Lord. And it can be true of any of these people if they cry out to you, Lord. So I pray for these people that they cry out to you, Lord. They confess their sins. They realize that they've tried to do it on their own, but they want to turn to you, Lord, and that they confess to you, Lord. Lord, thank you so much for dying for me when I'm a sinner, Lord. Thank you for allowing us to come together in a church. But Lord, let us never forget the calling that you've called us to as a church and as a people, that we are supposed to love the lost, that you love the lost because you care about them. So forgive us, Lord, if we've forgotten to care about them like you do. Let us emulate our Father and forgive us for all the things that we've done, Lord, when we've drawn away from you, Lord. Thank you so much for saving a rebel when we've hit rock bottom, that you're right there, Lord, being the loving God whose steadfast love endures forever. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.